I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to pew Bible page 1901, where we find our scripture reading tonight. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word, starting the reading in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. As far as the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's a classic song, but it's a song that became popular again when the movie Toy Story came out. It's Randy Newman's You've Got a Friend and Me. And the lyrics of this song are actually very beautiful. And actually, oftentimes when I read or when I read these lyrics or listen to this song, I think about how important friendships like that are, meaningful friendships like that. In a very real sense, we live in a society and a culture who thinks that the only real close relationship that they can have like that is if they have a spouse or a significant other. But in the story of Scripture, um, I find great comfort in seeing one of the most beautiful friendships in Scripture. That is the friendship between Jonathan and David. That their souls were knit together, the Hebrew says. That Jonathan made a covenant with David. They made a covenant with each other. That they were like brothers, even though they weren't brothers. Jonathan knew that he was meant to inherit the kingdom, but because his dad was such a, uh, a, a difficult person and turned away from God and his will, that Jonathan freely gave his right to the throne over to his dear friend David. And when you read the lyrics to Randy Newman's You've Got a Friend in Me, you can kind of get that sense. And the song says, When the road looks rough ahead, And you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. 
You just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you've got a friend in me. Yeah, you've got a friend in me. You got troubles, I got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and see it through because you've got a friend in me. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am, bigger and stronger too, maybe, but none of them will ever love you the way I do. It's me and you, boy. And as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny. You got a friend in me. And that's really what our scripture passage is talking about tonight. The reality of love in the body of Christ. What is that meant to look like? I've often said it to you, and I think it's important to repeat. We say oftentimes in our culture that blood is thicker than water. And what we mean by that is that we stick with our family, those who are related to us. Our blood is thicker than water. If somebody tries to get in between our family and they aren't blood related, then we don't let that happen, right? But what we don't often realize is the scripture communicates an even deeper reality, an even deeper truth. A, tr- a truth that is uh, maybe not even encapsulated in how jelly our word friend has become. You can become Facebook friends with the click of a button to somebody you don't even know. I say blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. Spirit is thicker than blood. And if you read our scripture passage tonight, you're going to find this. Is the reality that John is talking about. If you are a child of God, you will love the family of God. If you are a child of God, you will love the family of God. If you are a child of God, you're going to love the family of God. We should all be able to say to one another, no matter what you're going through, ups and downs, your life is hard, your life is difficult, you've got a friend in me. You've got a deep friend in me. I'm there for you. Right? And we have two points tonight. First is the social test. And the second is the savior test. In my prayer book, it's, um, it's English. And so every time that I write savior, I almost put a U in there. Because it's, that's how they do it in England. I don't know why. Just to be more... Uh, different, I guess. The social test is what John is talking about here in verses 11 through 15. So let's look at that together. I read verse 10 because at the end of that section, John says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. So there's a distinction being made. Here's two categories, children of God, children of the devil. But then he says, this is how you know the difference. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. That is, Someone who has no righteousness in them. Someone who performs no righteous actions. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And that's what 
transitions John to this topic of loving one another. John says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. So the first point is, sub-point is, the message from the beginning. And the question we have to ask ourselves here is, what is John referring to when he says the message from the beginning? Well, at the beginning of his letter, 1 John, he says the word of life, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so when John references here, this is the message we heard from the beginning, what he's saying is this is the message we heard from Christ, from Jesus. This is the message that we heard as we were his apostles following him and listening to his teaching and receiving his teaching. This is the message you heard from the beginning. And this is the content of this message. Love one another. Love one another. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John is almost verbatim quoting that moment that Jesus had with his apostles when Jesus came to them and he said, a new commandment I give you, right? A new commandment I give you, that you should love one another. And we've talked about this before, but when Jesus says a new commandment I give you, he's not really saying something that hasn't been said before in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, what is the, one of the greatest commandments, right? That you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? But what's interesting about this reference point here, that you should love your neighbor as yourself, is that the greatest point of reference in, con in connection with love, the expression of love that God speaks of in the Old Testament is, you know how to care for yourself, don't you? You, you at least have that understanding, that selfish expression of love. You know how to care for yourself, right? So you should love your neighbor as yourself. The principle of love is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? There is one principle of love in that, right? But when Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you should want, love one another, he adds this, not as yourself, but as I have loved you. We're going to get to that later when we look at verse 16. But this is what Paul, or this is what John is bringing to mind here. This is what you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another. But then he brings up another point, the murder from the beginning. This is the counterpoint. John says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You go back to the book of Genesis and you realize that although the first sin that we read of in the Old, in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis is Eve's desire to take of the fruit and to eat it contrary to God's command, right? But that's a personal decision. She makes and she eats. Of course, she gives the fruit to her husband. He eats. That's a personal decision. But the first sin that we see committed against another person 
is the murder of a brother to another brother. We, we say blood is thicker than water, right? But according to the very first brothers on earth, that didn't matter. Blood against blood. And so John says, don't be like Cain. Why? Because he belonged to the evil one. He was a, children, he was a child of the devil. And he murdered his brother. And, 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 and after he murdered his brother, God came to him and he said, where is your brother Abel? Like God didn't know where he was, right? Um, but what Cain says reveals his heart. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here's a question that we should all know the answer to. And if we don't know the answer to it, it's because we're sinners. Should parents have to teach their children that they should look out for one another, that they should care for each other, that they should have each other's backs? Right? One of the most um, horrible things that can happen at school is for you to hear that one of your kids was being picked on and your other kid didn't do nothing about it. The answer to Cain's question is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's why brothers exist. The fact that you murdered him is to do the very opposite of what a brother's calling is. And why did Cain murder him? murder him because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous what is John getting at here John is saying that the reason why Cain murdered Abel is not because Cain was jealous that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was not no, the reason why Cain murdered Abel is because Abel's righteous act revealed the evil of Cain's own actions. Have you ever been on a sports team? And you're on that sports team not really because you want to put all your effort into that sports team, but because maybe it helps you hang out with a girl that you like or a friend that you have. And you got that one person on the sports team that actually wants to be good at the sport, right? And when the coach says, run around the track, they go as hard as they can and as fast as they can. And they make everybody else on the team look bad. You see, when you live righteously, the wicked will hate. Because your righteous living, your desire to please God, live a life pleasing to God, makes them look bad. And so, don't be like Cain, the murderer, from the beginning. The malice of the world... Verse 13 then, John says, do not be surprised, my, brother, my brothers, if the world hates you. John, John is saying, listen, if you are going to live as a child of God, it means you're going to be doing what is right. 
And you're going to be loving the brethren. You're going to be loving other Christians. And the world is not going to like that. They're going to despise that. Just like Cain despised it in his brother. So don't worry about the fact that the world is going to hate you. Don't be surprised if it does. Jesus promised this. He said this was going to happen. So don't be surprised by it. And so then he mentions here. Verse 14 and 15, the marks of true transformation. The marks of true transformation. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life. When he says we've passed from death to life, what he means is we've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. John says, you are dead in, in your previous life. But now that you have come to Christ, now that you have heard what we have taught you from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've received a Savior, you've been forgiven of your sins, you've been given a new nature, you're a new creation. We have passed from death to life. And one of the ways that we can know that we have passed from death to life is because we love brothers. We love other Christians. If you are a child of God, you will love the family of God. You will love the family of God. So that's a mark of true transformation. That you know that you have passed from death to life. You have experienced a true regeneration, being born again, because you love your brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. John here is not talking about a perfection in our expression of love. Uh, the, of course, we could all speak of this morning or tonight ways in which we fall short of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ the way we could. Many of us um, understand that because we have received, we've been recipients in great ways and great measures of the love uh, of the people of God. And we wish that we were better at giving that love to others. But John here states a reality, a mark of a true transformation, and that is if you love other brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have um, an affection for the church, for the bride of Christ, that you can't describe in, in, in the reason why, it's just you can't, you, you love the Christians, you love Christians, you love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then that's a mark that you've experienced a true transformation. And then in, in verse 15, he mentions another one. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So, um, you don't hate. So, the contrast is, do you love other Christians, or do you hate? Hate is murder. And John says, no murderer has eternal life in him. If you have a hatred for the church, a hatred for brothers and sisters in Christ, um, a bitterness, then you are not a believer. You have not experienced a true transformation. You um, are in a state of spiritual death. And, and I think that there's all kinds of things that we could wrestle through in this. I, I know that there are people who have experienced hurt at the hands of... Uh, of um, churches in, in a variety of ways. 
um, who are very negative or are very distrusting of organized religion. Um, nonetheless, the reality remains the same. A true expression of a transformation that's happened in your life, that is, if you are part of Christ, if Christ has purchased you, if Christ has bought you, you're a part of his body. And a, one part of the body can't look at the other part of the body and say, I don't like you, I don't need you. When one part of the body looks at another part of the body and attacks it, it's called an autoimmune disease. It's, it's not a pretty thing. No, you're going to love the brethren. You're going to love fellow Christians. And so then we move on to the second test, the Savior test. Contrary to uh, modern beliefs about love being this sort of free-flowing, non-defined thing that can be um, love is love, uh, love wins, um, you know, all of this stuff, um, the Bible actually describes for us in definitive terms what love is. And this is one of the places that it does that. Verse 16 says, this is the prime example You want to know what love is? I want to know what love is. Singing all these classics now. Verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life. For us. You remember when Jesus said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another. As I have loved you. He goes on to say, Greater love has no man seen than this, that a man would lay his life down for another. Lay his life down. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, This is what love looks like. You lay your life down for another person, you lay your life down for your friend. And Jesus laid his life down for us. And so what is the prerogative? What is the takeaway? John says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So, uh, follow his example. So, Carrie, are you saying John says that we should have such a strong love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that if we saw somebody take out a gun and going to shoot them, that we would jump in between them and take a bullet for them? Is that really what John is saying? Yes. That's what he's saying. That you would value the other person's life greater than your own. That you would lay down your life for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That you would take a bullet for them. And here is the tricky point. Here is the sticky point, right? The prime example here is Christ. Christ laid down his life for us. But the reality is, for most of us, that's a theoretical question. 
if that opportunity ever came up, right? If that opportunity ever came up where I had to sacrifice my own life in order to save a fellow brother and sister in Christ, um, would I do that? You know, that's, that's sort of like a philosophical question. Would I take a bullet for you? You know, what, would I do that? For many of us, that's just something to think about in order to challenge the way our affections are. Because if we think about it and we think, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if I would take a bullet for something. Then our love needs to grow, right? Our love needs to deepen. But the truth of the matter is we probably won't ever find ourselves in a situation where we're actually going to do that. And sometimes that can be where we trick ourselves into thinking that we really are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we've minimized it down to this one theoretical possibility. Yeah, I'd take a bullet for you. But we don't think about how the depth of love expressed in taking a bullet for somebody or, or taking, uh, putting your own life at risk in order to protect the other person is to be expressed in the daily grind, Right? How is that to be expressed in the daily grind? And so, taking that into consideration, John goes on to give us that example, to take it out of the theoretical realm and to bring it down to the dirt and boots kind of level. This is what he says. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? The pity of love is another way to say the compassion of love. How can you say you love someone, but not have compassion on them? Pity can be used in a sort of derogatory way to say, oh, I pity that person because I'm in a better situation than them, and I look down upon them. But that's not the way John is using it. John is using it synonymously with, with compassion. And John is saying, if, just like James says in his letter, if you have the blessing of material possessions, right, and you see a brother and sister in Christ in need, you see a brother and sister in Christ whose shoes look worn out, whose tires haven't been changed on the car because they can't afford to change their, their car tires, who, um, who you find out their kids' clothes look a little worn out, they look a little raggedy, and you don't do anything for them, then how can you say you have the love of God in you? I'll tell you one thing. You can't say that you would take a bullet for someone if you won't give 20 bucks to them to help them out with their gas. John is saying a practical way that we can show our love of the brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we can take of what God has given to us and freely, with a grateful heart, give it to others that we know in the church that we find needed. And here's the thing. A lot of times we'll say things like, oh, if I knew somebody were in need, 
then I would help them. I would be glad to help them. Right? Or we could say things like, well, that's why we give to the benevolence fund at the church and the deacons give that out. But oftentimes, those are sneaky ways for us to get around our own hearts. And that is that if you, and I say this including myself, if we were to be honest with ourselves and we were looking for needs that we could help meet, we would find them. But we don't look because we don't ask. We don't get to know people. We don't hear about what's going on in their lives. Here's a really effective way to figure out if there's something that you can help somebody else with. Ask them, what can we pray about? And oftentimes, prayer requests reveal the hardships that people are experiencing and the ways that you can be a blessing to them. The ways that you can show up and in a practical way express the love of Christ to them. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? There's a lot of ways that we do that. We make judgments about people. Well, if they were more uh, careful with their finances and more uh, planning ahead, then maybe they wouldn't have gotten this situation. Well, if that person would just get a better job, um, well, they probably shouldn't have made that decision. That wasn't a good financial decision. And now look what there's got them. Rather than asking them, rather than giving them a judgment of charity, rather than thinking about ways that we can help. And I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying this about the way that we often think about other Christians, not just people you know, that we see out on, on a regular basis who are asking for money. This is the way that we can show the love of God to others in a very practical way. If you want to see if you have the kind of love that lays down your life for another person, well, a lot of times we don't open up our wallets and help somebody out because it feels like dying, doesn't it? A lot of times we won't listen to another's perspective and figure out where they're coming from because to lay aside our sense of rightness feels like dying. And that's what John is calling us to. That's what Jesus did. Die to yourself so you can live to others. So there's the prime example, there's the pity of love, and there's the proof in the pudding. Verse 18, John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. James will say it in a very similar way. James will say, if you come across a brother and sister in Christ and they are decrepit and they don't have any clothing on and they're hungry and you say, go, be warm, be fed, but you don't do anything to feed them and you don't do anything to warm them, even though you have the ability to do so, you, don't, you have a dead faith. 
You don't have a real faith. You don't have a transformative, real, true faith, right? And, and James will say as well that we should not just be hearers of the word, but we should be doers of the word. We should be those who live out our faith in the way that we treat others and our actions. And Jesus Christ said that they will know you are my, my disciples by the way you love one another. And when Jesus said they will know my disciples by the way you love one another, he was not talking about a generic emotional feeling. He was talking about the practical way that that love is expressed in the way that we care for each other. Have you ever been in a social situation and you didn't know these people, but you could tell that 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 group was a family because of the way that they interacted with each other and the way that they cared for each other and the way that they uh, were close to each other and had a sense of intimacy with one another, a closeness. They didn't mind standing close to each other. They didn't mind touching each other. You just you kind of get the social cues that, that, that those people are they're family. They're, they're related. You don't know them, but you get that sense for them, right? Have, have you ever been in that situation before where you sort of gathered that? If we were out in a social setting together that was not church-related, and we were spending that time with others, would they get that sense that we're family? By our closeness to each other, our comfortability with each other, our willingness to be open with each other. That's what John is saying the family of God should be like. He's saying that we cannot love with words or tongue alone. We need to love with actions and in truth. If you're a child of God, you'll love the people of God. And I hope that you all know that you've got a friend in me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have together. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you, as the great and sovereign Lord, would bind us all closer together as brothers and sisters in Christ, belonging to the same family, and that our love for you would blossom and grow and deepen, and that our love for the family you have brought us into, adopted us into, and created through your Son, Jesus Christ, our love would deepen for them as well, for our brothers and sisters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.